We're in Genesis 19, and uh, it's a very heavy passage, and I felt it was better for us to work through it in the sermon than for us to just try to read it out loud, all right? So, hey, if you know me, um, just even a little bit, you know that I like shoes, right? You know that I like shoes. You know that I'm a guy that likes my shoes. I've always been this way. So whenever I was a little kid, um, my grandparents would give us back-to-school money, And I would take that back to school money and I would spend it all on shoes. (laughs) I wouldn't get clothes. I wouldn't get the things that you needed. I would just spend them all on shoes. And I'm still this way, y'all. I'm still this way, all right? So I'm kind of cheap. I don't like spending my own money on shoes because they cost a lot of money. And so what do I do? I wait for birthday and Christmas and I ask for shoes, right? I just go all in on shoes. And so I, I love them. I don't have a ton of them, but like when I get the opportunity to ask for them, that's what I asked for, right? And so um, a couple of Christmases ago, I did that. I asked for a pair of shoes for Christmas. And so to my delight, I got them and I was wearing them out. Our family was out and we were running errands. And so I'm wearing them just trying to like break them in. It's like, man, these are awesome. I love them. And so I, we get back to the house, we eat dinner. Our boys have some popsicles, grand old time, right? And then it hits, it happens, right? We were back from the errands, we're around the dinner table, and one of our boys gets sick. And I'm at the worst place at the very worst time, right? I'm sitting by this child, and this child doesn't look to the other side of me. He looks at me and gets sick all over the place. Well, when I say all over the place, somehow it only hits my shoes. And so it's just, it's like my shoes are just a sponge for the sickness, right? And so if you imagine what I just shared was just brought into the body, was then released out of the body, and so it's all on my shoes. And my son is now feeling better, but I am a wreck, right? (laughs) I mean, of all the places that I could have sat If all the places where my son's head could have turned, where all of this sickness could have gone and landed right on my shoes, worst place at the very worst time, right? And what we find in our passage tonight is we're looking at a passage that everyone has heard of for better or worse. We're looking at the passage Genesis 19 where Sodom and Gomorrah, we all know this story. Lot finds himself in the wrong place at the wrong time, except his placement is no coincidence and it's not by accident, all right? If you remember what has happened in Lot's life leading up to this very passage, we know that Abraham and Lot, they have gone out where God has called them to go. God has blessed both of their families to the extent that they've grown very large to where they couldn't be in the same land together. And so what God does is Abraham goes to Lot. And he says, Lot, you can have your choice of the land. Lot looks over the land and he finds the most fruitful part of the land. And he says, I'm going there. And as he does that, Sodom and Gomorrah are a part of this very land that Lot has chosen. The reputation precedes Sodom and Gomorrah. People know about what is going on in both of these cities. Lot looks out and see how choice the land is where these two cities are and even knowing their reputation says, I'm going to go and place my family there. 
And as you look at the course of what happens, you see this progression that begins to happen in Lot's life, right? You see that Lot, when he moves to that land, he sets his tent outside of the city. Whenever the city is ransacked by King Kedorlaomer, you see that Lot, or, uh, yeah, Lot has gone in from having his tent outside of the city. Now he's living inside of the city. And he's taken, he's swept up with Sodom and Gomorrah. And then whenever you come to this particular passage, you see that he is fully ingrained into the life of Sodom. His house is there. You see that he's now on city council. Like he is a leader. He's sitting at the gates of the city. People look to him. And his daughters are engaged to be married to men that live within the city. I don't know if you can have a better description than saying that Lot's life has been fully ingrained into the city. And what we see is the two angels that have come and visited with the Lord and their visit to Abraham have now left Abraham and they've gone to Lot. They pay him a visit and we know what their intent is. They have come to judge the city for its wickedness and sin. And we know how the story ends, don't we? Like every single one of us, we've heard the story. We know that God judges Sodom and Gomorrah for their unrepentant sin. But two things I think really stand out to us from this passage that I just want to really camp out in for the whole of our time tonight, all right? And it's these two things. In this story, you see stand out the severity of sin. I mean, it's just right in your face, the severity and the seriousness of our sin. But then also, you see God's gracious deliverance. God's gracious deliverance. And so, look, I just want us to saturate ourselves in these two movements of this passage. And here's how we're going to do it, all right? I'm going to read through the story. I'm going to read through the passage. We're going to do it in two sections, verses 1 through 14 and then 15 and following. And we're going to, as we go through the two sections, I'm going to stop and make some observations about the story that will hopefully speak to our own life and our own experience from what we see in this story and what's happening in our life in this day and age. And then I want to end by just like a simple application for us as a church, all right? I just want us to end by setting in some of what we draw out of this passage as we try to seek to apply it to our own life. Sound good? All right, so here we're going to do. We're just going to dive in. I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. So buckle up. Here we go. Ready? Verse 1 says this. It should be on the screen. Yep, there it is. The two angels entered Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting at the Sodom's gateway. Again, city council. That's where the leaders of the city sit is at the front gate. When Lot saw them, he got up to meet them. He bowed down with his face to the ground and said, My lords, turn aside to your servant's house, wash your feet, and spend the night. Then you can get up early and go on your way. No, they said. We would rather spend the night in the square. Seems odd. I'll explain why here in a second. But he urged them so strongly that they followed him and went into his house. He prepared a feast and baked unleavened bread for them, and they ate. Verse 4, before they went to bed, the men of the city of Sodom, both young and old, the whole population surrounded the house. Can you just imagine that scene? Like the whole entire city coming in being around your house. Very daunting, right? They called out to Lot and said, where are the men 
who came to you tonight. Send them out to us so we can have sex with them. All right, now I need to pause here, all right? I need to pause so that we can reaffirm something and also clarify something, all right? I want to hold, like, I want to reaffirm that we as a church, we hold to the historic and biblical teaching on marriage and physical intimacy within the confines of marriage, all right? Like, we need to reaffirm this, all right? So our instruction comes from creation, not culture, all right? When we look at God's vision for marriage, what you see in the New Testament as the New Testament writers, both Jesus as well as the apostles, they all look to creation. They look at God's original design of creation for the means by which we look at God's vision for marriage. And so God's vision for marriage is one man and one woman who are faithful for a lifetime. That's God's vision for marriage, all right? So we need to reaffirm that, all right? I, we also need to clarify, though, that this verse is often used to preach very harshly against SSA and issues around it, all right? And that's not the focus of this text, all right? That's not the focus of this text. Hospitality at this time and in this culture said much about a person, all right, in their personhood, much about their character as well as their morality. And so what the author here is doing, what Moses is doing is he's the author of Genesis. He's showing the difference between Abraham and Lot and the way that they showed hospitality to these angelic hosts that were coming to visit them versus the people of Sodom, all right? That's what's happening here. And so the focus here is on the rape and brutality that we see within Sodom compared to what we see with Abraham and Lot and the objects or these visitors that have come to meet them, all right? You can see this as we're about to read that the focus is on the rape and brutality because of even the way that Lot tries to respond here, all right? And the way that they end up responding to him. So it's, it's about the perversity of the entire moral values of the city, not just this one particular sin issue. Does that make sense? So we need to reaffirm that we have a biblical stance on God's vision for marriage. We look to creation, not culture, just like the New Testament says, but at the same time, we want to be faithful to the text, which is on the morality of this whole entire city, all right? So verse six, Lot went, <clears throat> Lot went out to them at the entrance and shut the door behind him. He said, don't do this evil, my brothers. Look, I've got two daughters. This is what I'm talking about. I've got two daughters who haven't been intimate with a man. I'll bring them out to you and you can do whatever you want to them. He knows what their response is. He knows what they're doing. He's trying to offer a, a different peace offering. However, don't do anything to these men because they have come under the protection of my roof. And here's how they respond. Get out of the way. This one came here as an alien, but he's acting like a judge. They're speaking about Lot himself. Now we'll do more harm to you than we're going to do to them. They put pressure on Lot and came up to break down the door, but the angels reached out, brought Lot into the house with them, and shut the door. So the, the angelic hosts are coming to visit. They want to stay out into the city square because they know the response is going to happen here. But look, they're not afraid of it. They have the power even over these evil and wicked city. And so they're not afraid. They pull Lot back in. They struck the men who were at the entrance of the house, both young and old, with blindness, so that they were unable to find the entrance. Verse 12, then the angel said to Lot, 
Do you have anyone else here, a son-in-law, your daughters, sons and daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of this place. For we're about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people is so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Verse 14. So Lot went out and he spoke to his sons-in-law who are going to marry his daughters. And he says this, get up, get out of this place. For the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. All right, so this is the third major account of judgment that we see in the book of Genesis, all right? So in 19 chapters, we have the fall that has happened in Genesis chapter 3, and God gives judgment to Adam and Eve as well as the rest of humanity. You see in Genesis chapter 7, you have the flood. Sin has run rampant on earth. God has to deal with it, and he graciously chooses Noah to be the people that leads forward humanity even after God's judgment. And then here you see the fire of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. So yes, Moses is communicating to us human history, but even more important, God has given us frequent reminders of the severity of sin. He's telling us how serious Sin is to our life. And this story exists to show us in two ways why that is the case. One, it works to show us how vile our sin is. And then secondly, that God is just to judge our sin. All right, let me explain. All right, we have a tendency looking at sin is vile. We have a tendency to treat sin as part of just the human experience. All right. It's all been like, it's all like life with sin in this world is all that anyone in this room has ever known. The only people that have known anything different are Adam and Eve. And so look, whenever you live somewhere and something is just so familiar, you begin to build up a certain tolerance to it, right? Like whenever you move to a new place, you usually have new eyes that you can bring to things that people have begun to like create a blindness to because they've just lived there. There's a, there's a tolerance that they just don't see it anymore, right? So I have a friend who recently moved here from Canada, and as he has reacclimated himself back into the United States, he's noticed a couple of things. And so here's an example of what I mean in terms of like sin as part of just the human experience and what we think and how we just kind of begin to function in the life of it. He says, um, we... We have, America has grown to live with this, this normal sense of distrust in relationships, all right? We have this normal disposition of distrust in relationships. So relationships are built on trust, and trust is built on truth. But here's the problem that we have. We don't know what to trust anymore. We have no idea what to trust when it comes to our news outlets, when it comes to what we find on the internet, like even with people that are closest to us, look, we've been betrayed. We've had people that have turned their back on us and it has led to us living with a low level grade of distrust in just about any relationship that we have and we don't realize it anymore. My friend has moved back to the United States and he's like, this is like shocking. 
the level to which people don't trust each other anymore. Like the level to which they aren't willing to divulge things that are going on in their life because of the lack of distrust in relationships. It's astonishing. And look, research proves this, all right? So there's Pew Research that's done a report as early, as recent as 2019. And here's what 70% of the American public said. They can't resolve conflict why? Because of low trust in relationships. Not like, think about that. 70% of American civilians say they can't work out conflict because they can't trust people to carry on a conversation. Wow. And here's the thing. We have grown to develop such a tolerance of it that we don't even recognize it anymore. We, we don't even recognize that we don't share our life with people because we live with such a low-level distrust of people in all relationships. And look, here's our response to this. Usually, like, you may be feeling this inside right now. You're like, well, that's just the times that we live in, right? Like, you just kind of throw your hands up to, like, that's just how things are, right? It's like, what else are you going to do? But we need passages like this to kind of grab us by the shoulders and shake us and wake us up. Because, look, that's an ugly way to live. That's not the way that we were designed to live in this world. You were designed as a relational being created in the image of God, meaning that you are a relational person, that you are to share your life with other people. Look, you stop being human when you stop sharing your life in relationship with other people. Like, that's how you're hardwired. And so whenever we hear about this low-level distrust, it's not a throw your hands up, well, what are you going to do? It should shake us awake to the ugly reality with which we've been living. And that's exactly what passages like this do. They wake us up to just how ugly our sin is, how vile our sin is. That's the gift of stories like this. We want to shy away from stories like Sodom and Gomorrah because we don't want to look at the ugliness of it, but it's a gift because it shows us with the level of tolerance that we live with sin in our life. So here's some of the things that it confronts us in, all right? This story confronts our tendency towards exclusivity. What happens to these visitors that come in? They're different. They're from the outside. Look, we do the same thing. We look at people that are different from us, and the, our natural tendency is rejection, not acceptance. Some of us are working and we're on a path towards a different way, but we need, to be, we need to be confronted with what our tendency is, which is rejection and not inclusion. This story confronts us in that. This story confronts that we live in a very over-sexualized culture. We do. I can't watch a commercial with my kids watching a cartoon without there being some over-sexualized commercial with my kids. We've grown tolerant to it, though. We live with this, that's just how things are now, and we are blind to it oftentimes. This story confronts that we treat women so poorly. You see, the way that Lot, with his own daughters, treats his own daughters, offers them up. I've got two daughters that have not been intimate with another man. Oh my gosh, how, what a coward, right? 
Like his treatment of his own daughters, looking at the way that he's willing to just sacrifice them for two, two visitors he's never met before. The tolerance for the way that we treat women in this society should be confronted with this very particular passage. We should be confronted with even our level of distrust. The example I just tried to give you. Verse 14 says, his son-in-laws thought he was joking. A level of distrust for those that he was about to give his daughters to in marriage. Look, we need passages like this because they confront us with how vile our sin is. We have grown tolerant of sin in our life. And we need stories like this to take us by the shoulders, to shake us and wake us up to just how ugly our sin is. This is a gift. This is a mercy and kindness of God. But not only does it wake us up to how vile our sin is, it also wakes us up to how our sin should be treated. We have a tolerance for certain sins, but we also experience a drive for justice and wickedness in our life when we're confronted with it in our life. All right? There's, there is a way at the same time, it sounds like I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth, but you experience this, all right? Even though we have a tolerance for certain sins in our life, when we're confronted with deeply wicked and evil things, there is a cry for justice that happens in our soul too. All right? So whenever you see videos on social media where there is something wicked happening to an innocent party, what is the cry of your soul? It is justice. You, you, it wrecks you inside. There is a certain level to which the image of God has been retained in your life that when something wicked, so inhuman happens to an innocent party, there is a piece of your soul that cries out for justice. This also happens whenever you see crimes against the most vulnerable, like little kids. Whenever you see a news story that comes across your timeline about something that happens to your kids, especially you and women, um, there is something that riles your soul up, and it is a cry for justice, right? I mean, there's something that happened in one of our target neighborhoods here just this past week um, against a little innocent child by an a older adult man, and the cry of my wife's soul was justice. And that's not wrong. Because when we're confronted with something evil and wicked, it is the righteous response that there be justice carried out against that particular action. But here's what we need to be reconciled in our own minds, all right? Our sin is not excluded from the just judgment of God. God cannot overlook your sin. If he overlooks your sin, he fails to be himself any longer. God is the just God, which means he, has the, he holds goodness upright at all times. It's who he is. And anytime he, anytime he overlooks a particular sin, he would then cease to be God. But our God never changes. Now, here's the, often the response to that. The rebuttal is, well, I thought God was a loving God. How can God be so judgmental if he's also the extreme of love, if he's the, the primary definition of love? How can you hold those two things together? Well, in God's judgment, his love and justice work with one another, not against one another. Let me give you a quote because he says it better than I could myself. Tim Keller says this, in God's case, God's wrath 
flows from his love for his creation. He is angry at injustice, greed, self-centeredness, and evil because they are destructive. And God will not tolerate anything or anyone responsible for destroying the creation and the people that he loves. Now, here's what we need to reconcile in our life, all right? We like to put ourselves into the place of the, those, the, the people that God loves. And when we sin, we don't think about putting ourselves in the, the place or the seat of the person responsible for the destruction. We like to think about God's his love being shown to us, but when we sin, we don't put ourselves in the seat of the responsible party. But it, you have to look at the character of God and the love and justice and the justness of God in the way that he responds to sinfulness, including you. And God's judgment is fair. It is fair both towards Sodom and Gomorrah in this passage and look even towards you, all right? In Genesis 18, God discloses his plans to Abraham. He comes to visit Abraham and he tells Abraham that the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense and their sin is extremely serious and that he's gonna go down to see if what they have done justifies the cry that has come up against them. And if not, God says he will find out. And look, that's exactly what God does. We see this in Genesis 19. He sends the holy hosts. They go down into Sodom. They experience the people personally. Sodom proves the prayers of the people correct. And God is going to answer the outcry of the people towards these cities. It is a just judgment. What we read in verses 1 through 14 prove that they are deserving of justice against the sin by which people are crying out against them. And the same is true for us, all right? Psalm 139 is a great testament to this, all right? It says that nothing in your life is hidden from him. Nothing in your life is hidden from the all-seeing, almighty God. He knows when you sit down. He knows when you stand up. He observes your travels and your, your rest. Psalm 139 says that before a word is on your tongue, God knows about it. And here's what it even says about God and just how much he knows that nothing can be hidden from God because even darkness is not dark to him. Verse 12. That goes for your life as well. There's not a single one of us that can stand before God and say that we are perfect and righteous and without sin, not deserving punishment for the sin that we have done, the breaking of the call on God's life, our life to live perfectly before him. Not one of us can stand before him. And so look, this justice that reigns out on Sodom and Gomorrah is just because God is just and the same judgment that we deserve is also just from God. Now this is what makes the latter half of this story so astonishing though. With everything that I've just laid out before you, which feels very daunting, right? What we see in verses 15 and following is God's gracious deliverance of Lot. So let me read verses 15 through 29, and we'll dive in, all right? At daybreak, verse 15, at daybreak, the angels urged Lot on, get up, 
take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you'll be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. Because of the Lord's compassion for him, the men grabbed his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters. They brought him out and left him outside of the city. Verse 17, as soon as the angels got them outside, one of them said, run for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere on the plain. Run to the mountains or you'll be swept away. Verse 18, but Lot said to them, no, my lords, please. Your servant has indeed found favor with you and you have shown me great kindness by saving my life. But I can't run to the mountains. The disaster will overtake me and I will die. Look, this town is close enough for me to flee to. It is a small place. Please let me run to it. It's only a small place, isn't it? So that I can survive. And he said to him, all right, I'll grant your request about this matter too. And will not demolish the town you mentioned. Hurry up. Run to it. For I cannot do anything until you get there. And therefore, the name of the city is Zoar, which means little. 23. The sun had risen over the land when Lot reached Zoar. Then out of the sky, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, burning sulfur from the Lord. He demolished these cities, the entire plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and whatever grew on the ground. But Lot's wife looked back and became a pillar of salt. Early in the morning, Abraham went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and all the land of the plain, and he saw that smoke was going up from the land like smoke of a furnace. So it was, when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and brought Lot out of the middle of the upheaval when he demolished the cities where Lot had lived. We see God's judge, just judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah executed here. Yet we also, also see God's gracious deliverance. Let me try to highlight this for us in three ways. We see Lot's reluctance, we see God's compassion, and we also see Abraham's prayer. So Lot's reluctance, God is clear, right? Verses 1 through 14, there is no confusion over his words. Judgment is coming. And how does Lot respond? Verse 16, but he hesitated. Lot hesitated. Look, Lot's hesitation reveals his heart, right? If Lot leaves Sodom, what does he lose? Everything. Why does Lot choose the land that he lives in, the land of Sodom and Gomorrah? Because of how fruitful and luscious and green and resourceful the land is. Look, Lot hesitates because his heart resides there. The things that he loves, his possessions, are there in the place of Sodom. This is why Lot's, Lot's wife falls to a pillar of salt because she looks back at Sodom because that's where she has left her heart. 
And look, as I was reading about Lot's response here in verse 16, all of the Bible and Bible teachers speak of Lot as a buffoon. <laughs> they say he's an idiot. They say that he is a fool. Lot's heart is attached to his possessions like our hearts are often attached to the things of this world too. Like, okay, for instance, all right, I'll just speak to you out of my own experience. I love brownies. I love brownies, right? Like oftentimes our heart are so attached to food. I feel this, right? Look, here's the wrestle that I would have if someone were to come up to me. If I got like a massive pan of brownies and someone were to place that pan of brownies in front of me and say, you can eat this, but if you do, you're likely to fall over because of a heart attack. You know what my response inside of my own soul would be? I think I'm willing to risk it right? Like, I, I love food. I love food. Like, our hearts are often so attached to the things of this world that whenever, even if someone were to come and give us warning about it, what happens with our knee-jerk response? We're hesitant to give it up because our hearts are so attached to it, right? Like, you have these things in your life. You have things in your life that you love so much that if you had to give them up because God, the God of the universe, the God that spoke you into existence said, leave this and run because this might lead to your destruction, what is your response? Ah, I might risk it. You, you might be able to place your, your name here in verse 16, but Josh hesitated because our hearts are so attached to the things of this world. I love what Liz Lemon says in 30 Rock, Fear 30 Rock. Um, this speaks to my soul. Um, there's a scene that she has with Jack, who's her boss, and he's talking about this delicate, extravagant dessert, and Liz says, yeah, but have you tried a microwave donut? <laughs> it's like, man, that speaks to my heart and my soul. Look, if, we, if, we were, if I did what I just talked about with a brownie and I, fall, I fell over dead because of a heart attack, what would my obituary look like to you? What would my tombstone read? Buffoon, <laughs> right? What an idiot. Lot has a full life. He has a family. God has blessed him. He has so many things. He's so worried about losing all of those possessions with the falling judgment that comes on Sodom as if God can't supply it again. And we hold so fast to the things of this world out of the same exact fear that we would hesitate to give up because God tells us that it might ruin us and he calls us to run and flee. And our response is hesitation. And look, if Lot does this, and if he would have stayed in Sodom, what would his tombstone have read? Idiot. Buffoon. And this is where we see the compassion of God on full display. How does God respond to Lot's hesitancy? Verse 16, right after it says, but he hesitated. It says, because of the Lord's compassion for him, the men grabbed his hand. 
In God's loving compassion, he grabs Lot by the hand and he rips him out of Sodom and he saves him from destruction. And this is what the Bible, as well as other Bible teachers, talk about God's natural work, all right? There is a natural work and there's an unnatural work when it comes to God. Here's what God's natural work is. God's natural work is mercy. God's unnatural work is judgment. We see this, the Bible gives witness to this, all right? Isaiah 28, 21 calls a judgment against Israel as strange in his alien work. Here's what Lamentations 3.33 says. God does not afflict, look at this, from his heart or grieve the children of men. What does come from God's heart? What's the natural overflow? What's the natural bent of God's heart? It's mercy. Because all of these things are speaking about God's removing Israel from the promised land because of their constant rejection of him and living in sin. But Jeremiah 32 says what God's heart is, what his desire is, what he longs to do for his people. It says this, verse 41, I will rejoice in doing them good. Rejoice. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land, speaking of the promised land, in faithfulness. And look, look at this. This speaks to the heart of God. This speaks to his soul towards you. With all my heart and all my soul. God's unnatural work is judgment. You, yes, there are three times up to Genesis 19 that we see God's judgment against sin. But every single time what happens, there's always deliverance. God is always compassionate and kind. The overflow of his heart is mercy. He takes no delight in seeing people die. His delight of his heart, what makes him rejoice with all of his heart, with all of his soul, what is the overflow of his insides is mercy. Thomas Goodwin, an old, old Christian, puts it like this. In acts of justice, there is a satisfaction to an attribute, speaking of God's character, in that he meets and is even with sinners, meaning he's like made the plane even. He's carried out justice against them. Yet there is a kind of violence done to himself in it, something that is contrary to him. But when he comes to show mercy, to manifest that it is in his nature and disposition, it is said that he does it with his whole heart. There's nothing at all in him that is against it. Look at this. There is not reluctance in him. We are reluctant to follow God's command even whenever it's calling us to run from the thing that's going to cause us destruction. But here is the kindness of God towards you. He is never reluctant in showing you mercy. You are reluctant in following the voice of God in your life, but he is always, always rejoicing, delighting the overflow of his insides and giving you mercy. And he's never holding back, wishing that you would do one more thing right so that he could give it to you. It is his delight. Never reluctant. God's compassion is so beautiful and gorgeous towards us, and it's the highlight of this passage. 
And look, it doesn't stop there. How, why does God respond to Lot the way that he does? It's part of his character, yes. But look, you also see it's part of Abraham's prayer. We see this in verse 29. So the scene of the whole entire chapter ends like this. Abraham goes to the top of the hill where he's had a conversation with God, where the plans of God are disclosed to him, where he argues and he tries to win the 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 security of the city, would you just find 50? Would you just find 45? Would you just find 50? He works all the way down to 10. He's arguing. He's trying to see that God's justice be withheld from this particular city. And here's what we see in verse 29. So it was when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and brought Lot out of the middle of the upheaval when he demolished the cities where Lot had lived. Look, God responds to Lot with compassion because of the prayers of Abraham. Yet we look at Genesis 18 and we see, well, that was just a conversation between Abraham and God. Yes, that's prayer. Abraham had access to the almighty God because of the work that God had done in Abraham's life. Abraham was going and pleading for the lot, for mercy against Lot. And God hears the prayers of Abraham. He shows compassion towards Lot because of the prayers of Abraham. So look, notice this. God not only hears the prayers of justice against Sodom, he also hears the prayer for gracious deliverance of his people and he responds to it. Hallelujah! We have a God who hears both the cries for justice in the world, but also the cries for gracious deliverance against people that are undeserving of his mercy. Now, here's where it gets really, really satisfying. <laughs> it gets so remarkable, all right? This whole entire story of Lot ends in a cave. I'm not going to read that last part of this story because of um, the young ears that we have in here. Um, what you see is Lot's two daughters, after he's lost his wife, there are unspeakable acts that happen in that cave. And we don't hear another single story about Lot again. It's the last account that we have of his life. Until you get to the New Testament. How does Lot remembered in the New Testament? The Bible describes him as righteous. Look, listen to this. Second Peter 2, 7 through 8 says this. And if he rescued, if he rescued righteous Lot, distressed by the depraved behavior of the immoral, Speaking of Sodom, for as that righteous man lived among them day by day, his righteous soul was tormented by the lawless deeds he had saw and heard. Look, if you look at the whole scope of this story, including the story at the end in the cave, you look at this and you're like, righteous? I, I told Cherish this verse this week and she was like, how? How in the world could God describe Lot as righteous? Look, it's because what happens in the middle. Between Genesis 19 and 2 Peter is the life and work of Jesus Christ. Here's what the Apostle Paul says of the work of Jesus 
towards those who are sinners in verses uh, 15 through 16 of chapter 1. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst of them. But I received mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who believe in him for eternal life. That's what happened a lot. Jesus lived and died on behalf of Lot. And look, Jesus is the righteous one. And Jesus' righteousness is accredited to Lot. That's why Second Peter describes Lot as righteous. It speaks of him far better than he ever deserved, far better than he ever would have imagined. And look, this is the natural work of God. The natural work of God demonstrated throughout human history is that he takes reluctant sinners by the hand and drags them away from their own destruction. That is the gracious deliverance of God throughout human history of those that have trusted and believed in Jesus Christ. You look at this from saints from all different generations, right? You look at St. Augustine. What was St. Augustine's story? He was a slave to women, engulfed in a slavery to women. He was reluctant in faith. He had so many questions, intellectual questions, that he did not believe Christianity could answer. And then God sends Ambrose, this saint, this pastor, who comes and preaches the excellency of Jesus. And immediately, his, his questions begin to be answered. But look, he still is reluctant. He doesn't come to Jesus. And God compassionately saved Augustine in response, look, to the faithful prayers of his mom. The same thing that we see in Lot's life. You see this in C.S. Lewis's life. Here's what C.S. Lewis says about his own conversion. I was the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. But here's how he describes the work of God in his life. It's the natural work of God. I did not see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility with which will accept a convert even on such terms as me. The hardness of God is kinder to the, than the softness of men. And look at this, and his compulsion is our liberation. This is your testimony too if you've trusted in Jesus. Your testimony is that you are a reluctant sinner who is hesitant to turn away from your own sin where your loves resided. But God was so compassionate that he grabbed you by the hand and ripped you out of the destruction before it could consume your life. God saves, he, God destroys Sodom before Sodom can destroy Lot. And look, he does the exact same thing in your life. He divinely interrupts your life, grabs you by the hand, rips you away from the destruction that's coming your way, and Jesus steps in and absorbs all of it. And you get his righteousness. That's the gospel. Genesis 19 should be more of a story about God's kind deliverance of sinners that don't deserve it than the 
norm that we have in our minds about his righteous judgment against the world where we view him as unloving. Lot didn't deserve to be rescued. And God in his compassion rescued him. And he's done the exact same thing with you and me. All right, so here's how I want to try to apply this. All right. There's a, the founding pastor of a church in, Emmanuel, uh, in Nashville, Emmanuel Church is the name. Um, the pastor, his name is Ray Ortland, and he created a mantra for his church, all right? And here's the mantra. Number one, I'm a complete idiot. Number two, my future is incredibly bright. And number three, anybody can get in on this. And that mantra embraces that we are all just a room full of lots. <laughs> Lot was an idiot. God came in and kindly spoke into his life, I'm about to destroy the city, get out. And he hesitated. That's our story too. We're a room full of idiots. <laughs> Complete idiots. Turning from a relationship with God and clinging to the things of this world, our own sin. We are complete idiots, but we have an incredibly bright future because the exact same way that Second Peter speaks of Lot is the exact same way God speaks of you, the righteous one. Jesus has shared his rightful standing before God with you. And here's the good news for us. This is like why we are a church here. This is the whole purpose of why Storyline even exists because we believe anybody can get in on it. This grace of God is for anybody and everybody. All they have to do is give God their junk. All they have to do is put their worst foot forward. There's no cleaning yourself up before you come to God. There's no trying to keep the 10-step list in order to try to earn your way to God. He's not looking for some type of performance that you can come and lay at his feet. It's already been done for you because Jesus did it for you. And anybody can get in on it. That's the grace and kindness of God. God's riches at Christ's expense for you. And so look, here's why I want, us, I want us to be a people that pray like crazy for the lost here. That we, look, I want people when they, when they step foot into our church, whether it's in a gathering in our home, whether it's through these doors, wherever we end up, anytime people come in, here's what I pray that people experience, that we are the most grateful people in all of the world. Because we've, we understand how complete idiots we were by being hesitant and clinging to the things of this world and clinging to our sin. But God was so compassionate and kind to us that we have an incredible future because of what Jesus has done. And we pray like crazy that God adds to our number. That's what I want for us as a church. And that's the appropriate response to Genesis 19. So church, look, leave this place tonight grateful for what God has done in your life. You do not deserve Jesus, but God so loved you that he sent Jesus. Look into the brokenness and darkness and wickedness of this world and experienced it all full-fledged so that you might live in him. There's proper response to gratefulness. 
And then the proper response is pleading as Abraham did for Lot that he would save other people just like he did you and me. Let's pray for that right now.